Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Jane Hong. And I'm Tim Sang. And we're your hosts. This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment. Thanks for joining us. Hi, welcome to Centering, the podcast of Fuller's Asian American Center. I'm Jane Hong, a historian of 20th century U.S. immigration and foreign relations. I'm currently writing a history of Asian American evangelicalism since the 1970s. And I'm Tim Tseng, Pacific Area Director of InterVarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. I'm also a historian, but of American religion, with a focus on Asian American Christianity. Jane, who will we be speaking with today? So today we'll be talking with Dr. Fong Nguyen, who's an associate professor of history at California State University at Monterey Bay. So just a little bit about uh, Dr. Nguyen. He's the author of Becoming Refugee American, The Politics of Rescue in Little Saigon, published by University of Illinois Press in 2017. And the book, which we'll talk about um, at length today, I hope, um, is a pioneering social and cultural history of Vietnamese refugees in Southern California. So we'll be talking about places in Orange County, um, and other places as well. So welcome, Fung. Thank you for having me. There's so much we could talk about, but um, just as a starting point, uh, building on maybe the title of your book, the Pulitzer Prize winning writer uh, Viet Nguyen often makes a point to say that he's not an immigrant, he's a refugee. He wants to underscore that for folks like him, especially many, if not all Vietnamese Americans, um, at least during the 1970s and 1980s, it was not a choice for them to come to the United States. So they were forced to leave um, South Southeast Asia by US Cold Wars, um, which created wide-scale displacement, destruction, and death. Um, and along similar lines, I noticed your, your first book right, really speaks or focuses on this question of what it means to be a refugee. And you use this term refugee nationalism, um, which I found really interesting. Um, so I wonder just as a starting place, um, can you tell us a little bit about the history behind uh, Vietnamese migration to the United States so how do you see this distinction or difference between refugee and immigrant? Um, and how do you think it shaped the experiences of Vietnamese Americans distinctly relative to maybe other Asian Americans, for example? Well, first of all, um, Viet Nguyen was a mentor of mine when I was a graduate student at USC. So we've had a lot of conversations and exchanges about these, but this particular topic. And he's absolutely correct to say that um, there is a distinction that we can need to continue to make between refugees and immigrants. Asian American history goes back to the 1800s when large-scale waves of Chinese and then other groups came on over. But Vietnamese were nowhere in sight. That was because um, the U.S. was not really in the picture. Um, immigrants moved based on the colonial sphere of influence, and the colonial sphere of influence for Vietnam at that time was China and France. So if anything, Vietnamese were going into places like France, um, into China, especially if they wanted to pursue advanced studies and things like that. But it wasn't until the Cold War where the United States got intimately involved in trying to contain the spread of communism on a global scale that they got heavily invested in the expansion of communism or trying to contain the expansion in Asia. And that's when Vietnam became a part of the picture. In chapter one of my book, I talk about um, this concept of accidental allies, which is um, what I describe the relationship between the United States and, and these emerging Asian republics, starting with Taiwan, South Korea, and then Vietnam, or at least South Vietnam, was supposed to be kind of this third success story in the U.S. nation building process. Oftentimes, historians 
of the Cold War treat Vietnam as very exceptional. I try to do the opposite and try to treat it as part of a pattern of US uh, Cold War nation building or empire building, whatever you want to call it, during the Cold War. And it was assumed that it could be um, a success story in line with what had happened in uh, South Korea and uh, the Republic of China. But obviously that didn't come to pass. And as a result of a uh, you know, failed foreign policy, what's often been called the most disastrous uh, war and foreign policy in the history of the United States, you have um, you know, this huge exodus of Vietnamese, first uh, about 130,000 in 1975, who had nowhere to go, but their close ties to the United States create a situation where the US government felt they had a moral obligation to bring them over. So that's the kind of beginning of this large scale wave. Before that, in the 60s, there were smaller numbers of Vietnamese who came to the United States, either for military training or other kinds of you know, foreign exchange. Oftentimes they went to universities in the East Coast or sometimes the West Coast as well. But this was just a, a small contingent of people who were here to learn language and other things. But the first large scale wave came in 1975 at the end of the war uh, with people who would most likely have been killed or jailed for a long time had they uh, been in Saigon when the North Vietnamese army came on in. And subsequent waves came in afterwards. And the history of Vietnamese migration is wave after wave after wave. Each wave is funny because the United States, after each wave, feels that they have kind of atoned for the, all the wrongs they've committed in Vietnam. And it's the kind of history and the kind of how would you say it? The, the kind of cultural atmosphere surrounding Vietnamese migration helps us to understand the difference between refugees and immigrants. Whereas immigrants come of their own choice. They oftentimes want to prove their lot economically. And sometimes they even want to go back to where they came from, or at least they have that option. Refugees don't have that option, right? It's unsafe for them to return. And I think that is one of the big distinctions that they unsafe for them to return. And there's a kind of intimate relationship, like you said, Jane, between the conditions that cause their uh, displacement in the first place and then the country that receives them. And that in the case of Vietnamese, the country that received them was far, far away, but it's because the United States felt they had a moral obligation to bring folks in. Uh, mm -hmm. And this moral obligation was very bipartisan. So there was this consensus among liberals and conservatives that the United States had a moral obligation to bring Southeast Asian refugees into this country. So conservatives, their reason was that the United States was wrong to have cut and run, to have uh, stopped fighting the war when they believed it could have been won and to leave their allies behind, um, to hang out to dry, so to speak. Liberals felt guilty for another reason, that they felt that the war should have never been fought in the first place, that it was immoral to lead allies astray um, the way we did. So. Um, for different reasons, these two sides came together and said, you know what, for all the wrongs that we did, maybe this one act, and uh, it was encapsulated most concisely in, in uh, an op-ed in the New York Times back in 1975, that this could be this kind of one shred of honor and glory that the United States could attain to help hopefully make up for all the wrongs that had happened in the previous 10 years. Uh, so that explains a lot of the kind of cultural nexus that brought Vietnamese in and then subsequent waves as well as more people started to leave the country this time before the U.S. had any plans to bring them out. You had the boat people coming out after that, but we can talk about that further along. But you had further waves coming out and the basis for them arriving was most oftentimes a very moral basis. So the, the, this moral basis of people who had not necessarily a legal claim to come to this country oftentimes trumped any kind of 
of, of legal grounds for entering the country. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes their experience, their, their entry and their experience so different. Vietnamese were not exempt from any of the kinds of racism and discrimination, micro and macro aggressions that other Asians were exposed to, but they did have that component of being refugees. And if there were enough people who could recognize that, then they received a type of charitable treatment that other Asians would probably not likely receive. Now, there's so much um, in what you were saying that really resonated with me. You know, when I think about Vietnamese migration after the war, uh, 1975, after the war ends, I mean, a few things that I think are important to remember. It's first, most Americans did not want to accept refugees. Um, and so when you think about who the forces were behind refugee laws, exactly as you said, I mean, you had liberals, you had conservatives. John McCain plays a big role in some of these later pieces of legislation. One of my undergrads actually wrote a thesis about this a few years ago. And so I learned a lot, even from her research. You know, it, it really is Congress um, pushing many of these refugee laws. And that's also what's interesting about post-Vietnam um, refugees. The legal system under which they came was also different, as you, as you alluded to, right? When I think about, you know, we've talked um, on this podcast mm -hmm. about the 1965 Immigration Act, which is, you know, this kind of landmark act. My parents came under that act. My husband's parents came from Korea under that act. Mm -hmm. But with early Vietnamese immigrants, at least in the 70s and 80s, right, as you said, they're coming under the 1980 Refugee Act. They're coming under the 1987 um, Homecoming, um, Amerasian Homecoming Act. There are specific laws that are passed that create a, to a totally different legal regime for them. And I think that's a really interesting part of the story. The other piece that I thought was really, um, I think, important and that I'm really glad you fleshed out so thoroughly um, it it kind of goes back to this kind of well-known quip um, that the historian Gary Okihiro said. You know, his big piece is that Asians came to America because Americans first went to Asia. And I think, you know, exactly what you were saying, right, mm -hmm. the history of Vietnamese migration reflects that pattern um, very clearly. And, and you're right. I think Vietnamese follow a longer history of, of kind of U.S. wars and U.S. empire. I mean, so it, in my research, I talk about U.S. empire in Asia particularly during the post-World War II period. So I look at mm -hmm. Korea, Japan, the Philippines in particular, but it is really important to remember that kind of the Cold War, right? In particular, the Cold War histories that shaped a lot of our migrations here, um, even with other groups like South Koreans, for example, you know, who I, who I know better. Yeah, and I think that the Cold War implications or the context of their arrival helps to us to understand a little bit more about identity formation and the, the terms of their acceptance. Like you mentioned just earlier at, at the beginning that um, majority of Americans didn't want Vietnamese and other Southeast Asians over. And that's absolutely true. I think it was a Gallup poll in 1975 found out that 54% of Americans did not want Southeast Asians to arrive. But in historical context, that's actually an improvement mm -hmm. over previous yes. decades. So when Jewish people try to get out in the late 30s from Hitler's regime, the, the percentage of Americans who didn't want them was in the 70s. So you have, you know, 54% is bad, you know, relatively uh, in that context, but, you know, over the long stretch of time, that's actually an improvement, kind of like yesterday's impeachment vote, how you interpret it. You would, some people might say, well, 10 Republicans voting for impeachment, that doesn't sound like a lot of people, but that's actually the most bipartisan impeachment vote in the history <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> I think I read one of those pieces talking about that exact point. No, I think you're right. And I, you're right that it's also important for us, especially at this moment where 
refugee admissions are at record. I mean, you know, for the last few decades, they're at record lows um, under the Trump administration. I taught a whole course on refugee uh, migrations last semester. And the numbers are actually pretty amazing to look at. But you're exactly right that, I mean, refugee admissions generally, historically, have not been popular among the American public. And mm -hmm. when you think about, yeah, Jewish refugee migration, I mean, the United States didn't actually allow Jewish refugee migration even in World War II, largely because of anti-Semitism, right? Uh, among Congress is, is what the argument is, but you're right. I think refugee kind of sentiment around refugee admissions is its own particular history, which again, it kind of overlaps with general immigration history, but it is distinct in its own way. And I think that's the other piece that I wanted to ask you about just in thinking about your 2017 book, kind of what were some of the findings about Vietnamese Americans in Southern California and how they compared with maybe Vietnamese Americans in other parts of the country, like San Jose, for example, the Bay Area, perhaps parts of the Midwest where a lot of other uh, post-Vietnam refugees ended up, places like Minnesota, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and mm -hmm. just talking about kind of how they compared and, and how their kind of acculturation or integration process uh, mm -hmm. went. Mm -hmm. well, that's a great question. I think um, I was really curious about that too. I started the book thinking that I knew what the answer would be, but as I talked to people and, and you know, gathered more data, you, you, you reach these really interesting sets of conclusions. And one is that being a refugee is not something people were necessarily proud of when they first entered this country because of the, the kind of trauma and the, the kind of suffering that kind of went hand in hand with leaving one's war-torn country behind. Oftentimes, you know, you're, you're leaving behind parents or siblings, friends, or maybe even children that you are not certain you'll ever see again, because that's the, the basis of refugee migration is that you're leaving forever. So there was a lot of tragedy involved. And, you know, the second chapter of the book has to do with this transition from tragedy to triumph. And one of the ways it's done is that, you know, this narrative of rescue, which is implicit in refugee history in the United States, was explicitly um, narrated and emphasized among Vietnamese Americans, that you are here because a benevolent country has done this for you. And it had an interesting effect because part of it was to make Vietnamese people feel good about themselves, but also it was to put America on the right side of history as well. So I think one of the big mistakes we make when we, we talk about and study Vietnamese Americans is to study them in isolation and not to think that the United States is a stakeholder in refugee identity as well, is that to make refugees proud of themselves or even to be as anti-communist as they are known to be is something the United States has a stake in. Jane, you said you've taught refugee studies already at Occidental. So one of the books you probably come across is Calculated Kindness that talks about how the United States essentially ramped up refugee admissions during the Cold War because it would be advantageous to admit refugees specifically from communist countries. Uh, you know, in the period from 1945 you know, through the end of the Cold War, about 90% of all refugees were fleeing communist countries. So the United States had a very specific and narrow definition of refugee that was obviously deviated from the international definition. The international definition said anybody who was fleeing oppression or you know, near certain death because of their political or ethnic or religious views, whereas the United States, you know, almost clearly defined refugee almost solely on the basis of whether or not they were fleeing communism or not. And that's why other people fleeing uh, oppression have had a hard time coming into this country. And, you know, the United States had this kind of policy when it came to dictatorships is 
hey, as long as they're not communists, they're okay with us kind of stance. And that, you know, the Vietnamese came here under these, this kind of um, narrative and, and kind of discourse of rescue. And that kind of set the terms for how they would see themselves. Um, if you are being told that you are here because a benevolent nation rescued you, then the, um, the kind of posturing that's expected of you is going to be that of eternal gratitude. Right? That you feel that you are indebted to the country that brought you in. But at the same time that this, this sense of indebtedness, this narrative of rescue is something that Vietnamese can use in their favor as well to say, well, you know, you did this because you owed us something. You have a moral obligation. Well, maybe you have a moral obligation to bring these other people in, such as people who are in the re-education camps right now, the political prisoners in Vietnam. Maybe you can do this for us on this level as well. Maybe help us build a memorial or something like that. But what, in terms of the, the difference between like in Southern California and the rest of the country is that I discovered, and it's in the, I believe the last chapter of the book, it, it shows the difference between Vietnamese in Boston and Vietnamese in Southern California. And that those in Boston were not able, and this is after the Cold War, to be able to build a, a memorial or to do any kinds of you know, refugee or anti-communist oriented celebrations because they for one were not a majority or e even a large population in the Boston area. So they weren't able to really get their way politically. They had really very little political clout at the local level. And once the Cold War ended you know, and the, the federal government felt their moral obligation to Vietnamese had come to an end, the only clout Vietnamese would have from then on would be at the local level. And that's why you see more progress in terms of, you know, refugee politics or Vietnamese American politics to do these very kind of overtly anti-communist things like have the flag of the Republic of Vietnam recognized, have anti-communist zones and things like that to make sure that neighborhoods are called Little Saigon and any mention of Ho Chi Minh is met with fierce resistance and opposition, that they're able to do that because they have more clout at the local level. And at the beginning, when Vietnamese were first here, I think, you know, I, I said at the beginning, they were ashamed of being refugees. And most people, Vietnamese and Americans, were ashamed to talk about the Vietnam War because, it, as you said, people didn't want Vietnamese people here. So public opinion about the Vietnam War was extremely negative. I witnessed it as a child myself when I think uh, had this incident with uh, a peer. When I told him I was Vietnamese, this was in middle school, he said, Vietnam, huh? We lost a lot of good boys over there. And when he meant we, he didn't mean people like me. He said, he's implicating that people like me were responsible for the death of real Americans. And you know, there was this episode of Magnum PI in the early 1980s where you know, Magnum, like other action heroes from the 1980s, carried the, you know, served in Vietnam and carried the scars of Vietnam. And he visits the little Saigon area of Honolulu and, you know, we think of Little Saigon as this kind of great festive place where you can get authentic Vietnamese food and, and so on and so forth. We don't associate it with controversy too much on a day-to-day -day basis. But for Magnum P.I., this was a traumatic place where, you know, if he, once he went there, the ghosts of the war would haunt him all over again. It was a very shadowy place that um, he tried to avoid for the most part. And it was only because a client, uh, an investigation brought him there that he would have to go there in the first place. So there's this kind of very ominous and negative vibe about the Vietnam War and Vietnamese want to avoid this at all costs in order to fit into the country. You know, the idea of celebrating Thet, the Lunar New Year, was very controversial at the time because a lot of American vets associated with the Thet Offensive of 1968. So in the American context, Thet has a very negative connotation at first and it takes a while to transform it, the mainstream understanding of it, into something much more positive. And so, you know, Vietnamese people are trying to blend in back then. But, you know, things we come to realize, especially 
over the course of the, the Reagan years is that it becomes advantageous to be very anti-communist. It actually can make them pass as kind of more American or more patriotic because it says, you know, I hate communists just as much, if not more than you do. Um, it's a way of saying that you are, you know, on the American side and so forth. So um, those are some of the things that, you know, help to understand what it was like to be Vietnamese and to, you know, feel that you were brought in under this kind of discourse and politics of rescue and have your life defined by that. And I think that's what separates a lot of the older generation from the younger generation like myself, where I don't have, even though I did migrate to this country on a boat, I am technically a refugee, um, but I don't have actually any memories of that because I was so young. So the, mm -hmm. the amount of indebtedness that I'm supposed to feel for the United States is just not organically there. Right. Fong, that, that is a fascinating direction that you're, you're, you're taking us because as we talk about the intergenerational dynamics in the future the, and later on in this, in this podcast, I think some of those um, issues are going to surface. I recall when I was a kid, my ch little Chinese church that I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, actually helped with the resettlement of some Vietnamese refugees. And I remember that at least from within our church, the, the, the only goal we had was to try to convert them and get them to join our church. And we felt that was a failure, a miserable failure, <laughs> because most of the Vietnamese had their own sense of agency and they decided to leave Brooklyn and go elsewhere. And, and, and I just never knew what happened to them. So um, it's, a, it's a fascinating exploration that you're sharing with us in terms of the transition from refugee to whatever status they're given now. If I could turn our attention to um, religion, I have a couple of questions about religion in the Vietnamese and the Vietnamese American context. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the impact of religion in the history of Vietnam, at least just briefly, what was going on maybe before the 1980s? And yeah, yeah. I mean, Vietnam has always been a kind of highly fragmented society, just the mm -hmm. geography of it and the history of war and colonialism there between the impacts of you know, China and, and France and also the other Southeast Asian countries. There's a reason curry is more popular in the southern part of Vietnam than in the northern part, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's because of its proximity to places like Thailand, which has closer proximity to India and things like that. And so, you know, religion has always been fragmented. And that's why, for example, even though France has been there and they brought Roman Catholicism, they weren't able to make it a dominant religion the way that they were able to in their other colonies or the way that Spain was able to make it a dominant part of the identity of the Philippines or other parts or Latin America. But they were able to, you know, succeed in getting about 10% of the population converted to Catholicism. And that made Vietnam, Vietnam as a result, the second largest Catholic country in all of Asia. Like I said, it's a fragmented uh, religious society. So there are other religions as well. I think Gao Dai and Hua Hao is very popular, um, especially amongst um, American academics. They like to study those two religions because I think they're fascinated by the fact that those two religions were not aligned with either the Communist Party or with the South Vietnamese mm -hmm. government. So they were kind of seeing, you know, almost seeing like what would have uh, Vietnam been like if maybe those religions had more influence in that society. And I think transferring to the United States, you still have that fragmentation. 
majority or at least the plurality are still Buddhist or non-affiliated. But Catholics are a much larger percentage of the Vietnamese American population than they are in Vietnam. So you go from 10% to a little less than, you know, in Vietnam to about a quarter of the Vietnamese population here in the United States being Roman Catholic. And that has to do with the fact that the government of South Vietnam during the 60s and 70s, Roman Catholics were well represented in that government and in that society in general. And so that explains a lot of the influence or at least the, the representation of Roman Catholics in the United States. And I think the ability of the Roman Catholic Church to be so organized and so detail-oriented, I think allowed Roman Catholics or Roman, Vietnamese Roman Catholics to be able to build community and a sustainable community at a much faster pace than other Vietnamese groups that had to depend on maybe the commercial sphere or on kind of personal, interpersonal relationships um, or just even small family structures. So I think the Vietnamese community or the Catholic community started out in an interesting way. So mm -hmm. there was this um, Vietnamese priest in Binghamton, New York, and uh, he was obviously very lonely, but he was very interested in building community. And the, the Catholic Church prints out a directory, publishes a directory every year and lists every single Vietnamese uh, or every single Catholic priest in the United States, right? And you can go to different places and look it up. And I happened to look it up a few years ago. And through those directories, he was able to find that there were some Vietnamese priests that were resettled in Southern California, LA, Orange County, San Diego. And he put in a request to get transferred to Southern California. And eventually the church agreed, sent him to Southern California. So him and a few other Vietnamese Catholic priests started to build a community there. And that, you know, they were given permission by this church called, I think it was St. Catherine's, to have um, mass at their facility. And of course, the, the place is already filled. So they wind up getting the 6 a.m. spot. But despite getting the 6 a.m. mass, time slot that it's always been packed. So that, you know, created a, a kind of a magnet for other Vietnamese to move into the area. So, uh, you know, Vietnamese Catholic community is kind of like field of dreams. You build it and they will come. Um, and the Catholic church was actually at that time, very nice to be able to sponsor carpools so that people who, you know, you know lived as far away as Norwalk could make their way to Orange County to attend Vietnamese mass and actually meet other Vietnamese people. Incidentally, even though my family is not Christian, it was through the church that they were able to socialize with other Vietnamese people when they first arrived um, in Binghamton, New York in the late 1970s. That, hmm. you know, obviously they wanted my parents to convert, um, but they were probably just happy enough having other Vietnamese in the building to socialize with, you know, given that they, didn't think they would ever be able to get back to Vietnam. But, you know, Tim, you're talking about this secondary migration that's going on. And obviously that happened with my family too. Um, the state of New York would not let my father work and go to school at the same time. You know, the United States is in the midst of a serious economic recession. And the idea of self-sufficiency was a primary goal of politicians in the United States that we can't let these people be on welfare forever. So we have to find a way to get them into the workforce. We got to make sure they get a paycheck and support their families. And so, you know, my dad was not allowed to go to work and go to school at the same time, but he discovered that in California, he was able to do that. He could get financial aid, improve his English, improve his, um, you know, soft skills, and then the hard skills at the same time. 
and also, you know, make a living on the side the way students do today. Was, was that a draw then? Maybe going to a, a state that provided more? Oh, that's a, I'm off base here, but I was going to ask him about the social service and, and, the, and the general ethos. But, um, but religion is a big impact, is a big yeah, factor yeah. too in people. I mean, exactly. if you're a Roman Catholic and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, the best you have are sympathetic um, English-speaking churches in Florida yeah. or North mm-hmm. Carolina, or Michigan, and you find out there's this community that's sprouting up in Southern California. And I, I don't think you can separate the two because the social services, I think, and yes. I argue in my book are essential for you know sustaining the community, at least economically, while obviously mm-hmm. the, the religious institutions sustain people spiritually. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of social services that California is relatively rich in at the time uh, makes it possible because yeah. I think, you know, when Vietnamese first came to this country, I mean, we can't emphasize enough. Most people didn't want them here. The exactly. people that did, right. You know, I, I talk about this kind of sponsorship bubble mm-hmm. of people who allow Vietnamese to come into their homes and live with them. And they, you know, paid for their room and board and everything. Um, these people probably assume that these Vietnamese folks are crazy. If they think they're going to leave the only people in America that are, are nice to them, and think that they can survive on their own in, in California or um, you know other places around the country. You know, even though it's, I'm sure the, the warm weather in California was also <laughs> a magnet. But these other things are, are just as important. But these sponsors are like, okay, good luck. But you know, the these social services in California allow people to you know get the spiritual and the kind of uh, cultural and the economic sustenance that they need. Medi-Cal existed. Mm-hmm. Almost lots of doctors accepted Medi-Cal. Almost all the Asian supermarkets accepted food stamps. You have a um, public education system that's relatively affordable at the time. I believe it was about $500 mm-hmm. a year mm-hmm. to attend a UC in the 1970s. And then going down to the CSUs and the community colleges, it's even more affordable. It's virtually mm-hmm. free. Um, in Orange County, they had free daycare at the community colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, Sympathetic counselors like mm-hmm. Gail Morrison in uh, Santa Ana, who went out of their way to mm-hmm. kind of help students fill out uh, fee waivers mm-hmm. for exams and other things, right. um, financial aid forms. Yeah, I, California I, was kind of a gold mine. Sorry. Absolutely. I I, also, I find it interesting how the two blends. And if I can go back to our last conversation um, earlier before this podcast, you, you talked about how Catholic uh, Vietnamese differed from Filipino Vietnamese in the sense that. Uh, this, the Catholic Church for Vietnamese was more of a cultural and linguistic center, and more so than among Filipinos who had had more options about integrating into the mainstream. So I thought that was a very interesting comparison because that reminds me of a lot of Protestant and evangelical churches. I remember uh, going down to Southern California to do an immersion process project, and we visited a Vietnamese evangelical community. And mm-hmm. what we saw there, this was back in the early 2000s, and we, we saw the dynamic where religion function as a real support for the, the ethnic community. But we're all, we also noticed some generational tensions. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to know I, I, uh, what, you, what you've been observing, in, in, at least in the religious communities, how these uh, intergenerational tensions are, uh, I guess, in the last 20, 25 years. What's happened to that and how that has impacted the, the community as a whole? I think language is probably the biggest barrier between the generations is that, you know, there's this primary emphasis on having Vietnamese Catholic, 
mass or Vietnamese churches preach in the vernacular, which is the Vietnamese language. And so as a result, you know, that is going to leave out the, the adult population that's not comfortable speaking Vietnamese. And then eventually even, you know, the, the generation that grew up in the church, if they don't wind up having friends in the church, then they have little incentive to stay once they grow up. Um, that, so there's a crisis of attrition that's going on. I think this applies to, to a lot of uh, religious institutions as a whole. Right, that, that their membership dwindles as people grow up and they grow out and they become lapsed Catholics or lapsed members of their church. And that probably as a result of that, the, the church responds by, they have two options, right? Is to become more open and welcoming and inclusive or to kind of double down on what already works. And the Vietnamese church has doubled down on what already works. I mean, the only thing they probably opened up on is the dress code. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to dress. You can do wear do rock music now or, you know, you can be very, come as you are. <laughs> well, you know, you can wear, I mean, I, I think, uh, I think it used to be you had to wear your Sunday best, right? And I, I went to a Vietnamese Catholic mass in Sacramento and when it was a hundred degrees outside and everybody's wearing shorts. I don't love it. <laughs> so we are approaching the end of our time. So I wanted to uh, make sure I asked this question and I'll frame it briefly there's the politics question and kind of where religion fits into mm -hmm. that, that picture. So among Asian Americans, Vietnamese Americans are among the most politically conservative. They are one of the mm -hmm. most likely to affiliate with the Republican party. Uh, many voted mm -hmm. for Donald Trump. And usually, you know, these mm -hmm. often, you know, explanations as to why kind of cite the anti-communism of Southern Vietnamese refugees and their family members. And, and just very briefly, I mean, this is something, right. When you think about partisanship and the cold war, right. There's this longstanding theme of, Republicans are the ones who are hard on communism. They're the real anti-communists and Democrats, right? They lost China in 1949. They're soft on communism. There's actually a whole thread um, that I teach in my diplomatic history class, right? There's a whole kind of partisanship to this. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered if very briefly, you could just kind of speak about this political trend. And, and I know, so we see the kind of, right, anti-communism piece, but do you also see any religious component um, to this conservative trend within um, Vietnamese America? I think there is. I don't think you can discount it. I think it's related partly to what I was mentioning earlier about this crisis of attrition and that, you know, how does the, the church respond to it? And the Vietnamese church has responded to it by kind of doubling down on what works. So they, they haven't, you know, allow people, they don't speak any more English now than they did 30 years ago. And, you know, they appeal to people who speak Vietnamese exclusively. So those are people who are more culturally conservative, because those are the members who have stayed after all these years. And, you know, they, languages, speaking Vietnamese is not inherently conservative, but appealing to the people who've hung out of that church over 30 years and have obviously gained seniority is in their best, what they believe is in their best interest. Obviously appealing to those people who still stick around after all these years is kind of going to increase the kind of conservative bent of the church as well. And I think, you know, Catholics I think, you know, it's partly related to the history of Vietnam. In the Vietnamese community, there's this kind of folklore. And I know in the kind of non-Vietnamese context, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, we know that in 1963, the president of South Vietnam, Ngo Dinh Diem, was killed um, with permission of the Kennedy administration. And at the time, at least the way the history books tell it, um, is that he was very unpopular in Vietnam. If you weren't Catholic, he hated his guts, right? Because he didn't like anybody who wasn't Catholic. Well, an interesting thing has happened in the Vietnamese community. And it happened, I think, first in Vietnam, 10 years later, is that I think people had this kind of revisionism that said, you know what? Things really went to hell after we let Ngo Dinh Yim die. 
And, you know, we had this success, uh, a bunch of coups that took place after that, failed leadership, war has just not gone anywhere. You know, what if we had just, this kind of hardline thinking eventually became hegemonic is that, you know, the, what Gordon Yim did, he was kind of a softy compared to what we got now. We should have stuck with him because he had this kind of no tolerance policy when it came to communism. And if we had just stuck to that, we had won the war, no sweat. You know, Catholics, obviously, um, they dig that wow. thinking. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a consensus among all Vietnamese people that he was the last good leader that the country had. But obviously, Catholics are even more passionate about that because Ngo Dinh Yim was a Roman Catholic himself. Mm -hmm. And right. so the idea that, you know, the way to deal with communism or any kind of uh, deviance uh, or dissent is to crush it, I think, you know, in a kind of very authoritarian manner, I think meshes really well with the, the kind of conservative politics in America today, which is very authoritarian. There are other issues too that I think Catholics line up with, which is like the, the abortion issue. Although I don't know how much they actually care about it versus how much they have, it's performative. You're never really sure because, you know, I was in Vietnam and everybody, you know, was very performative about how they talked about history. So you never know how genuine people people believe in these matters versus these being talking points that they have to say in order to back up how they feel. But abortion is a, a big issue as well. I, I had a huge debate with some old Catholic church mates in Chicago on Facebook right before the election about this issue. A non-religious religious issue that kind of helps to explain the conservatism or at least this resurgence in conservatism is the incident a few years back where China expanded their territory into the Spratly Islands between them and Vietnam. And that really pissed off Vietnamese there and here to the extent that they felt the Obama administration didn't take a hard enough line against China. I mean, Obama's kind of solution to that was to, event, to try to get uh, the TPP passed. He eventually, you know, came up against two obstacles to the TPP, which was uh, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. So, you know, we don't have TPP anymore, which was designed to strengthen Southeast Asian economies and provide it uh, as a buffer against China. So that didn't happen. And so people were pissed off about that. They think, you know, if we, Donald, the thing they liked about Trump was that he, you know, he talked a tough game and he was going to take it to China. So it's not even just anti-communism. It's a specific type of Vietnamese nationalism is that we have to protect, you know, used to be we have to protect our sovereignty against, uh, you know, the incursion of Vietnamese communists. But now there's this kind of uneasy alliance with them as they, well, you know, we'll, we'll kind of fight hand in hand with them because right now China is the bigger threat to our sovereignty than communism is. Yeah, that, that's, so, I mean, it's very situational. Yes, absolutely. That's a fascinating uh, point there because I see the, a very similar dynamic in, among many Chinese diasporic Christians too who, who, who say the same, very same thing. Well, in about a minute, could you, having shared with us all this remarkable and, and thoughtful information, I'm wondering, in about a minute, could you help us think about what you see the future might look like uh, given in the role of religion um, in the future of the Vietnamese American community? Yeah, I think, you know, although I think a lot of the, the church, especially the Catholic church, you know, there, there's potential to kind of stay conservative. I think the church can be at a crossroads today. And I think that just depends on the extent to which I think this whole idea of a religious left in this country is able to develop and grow. So that's gonna be dependent on factors outside of the Vietnamese community. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, it reminds me of an article I read a few years back that talked about pro-democracy movements in Southeast Asia. And he says, one of the, the biggest weaknesses of the pro-democracy movement right now is they don't have the support of the US left. 
And that's going to be, a, and even, even just left of center, uh, it doesn't have to be a Marxist. But the point is that, you know, we don't have that right now. And the reason is because the, the left is afraid that if they do speak out against communism in Asia, that the kind of old wounds of the past will be reopened. And instead of having a productive argument about democracy movements now, it'll, it will have to refight the old wars. And, and people will ask these reactionary questions. Well, are you then admitting that you were wrong about the Vietnam War? And then we can't have a discussion about today's issues because we'll still be fighting about the issues of the past. But Jason, you talked about being in Georgia and you know the, the Senate elections over there and Raphael or Reverend Raphael Warnock got elected to the Senate. And I think some pundits have called this the beginning of the rise of the religious left in the United States. So, you know, there is potential for that to happen. And, and you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, there are a lot of left-leaning Vietnamese Catholics in the United States. The problem is that they just don't have an institutional home right now. And it'll be interesting to see if there are, you know, Vietnamese Americans who want to become men of the cloth and, you know, lead these folks, or if there's another home for Vietnamese Americans um, outside of a Vietnamese church or outside of Vietnamese pastors. But, you know, I think there's a lot of potential for this. Yes, that's such a common theme, finding home. <laughs> Fong, thank you so much for giving us your time and your insights into the Vietnamese American community and um, the role of religion in its history. Um, I want to wish you God's uh, richest blessings in your future endeavor. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. You can listen to Centering episodes at soundcloud.com backslash centering podcast or your favorite podcast app. Go in peace and remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are. Thank you.